Welcome back to another impactful night of the Impact of Education Leadership. This is episode 99. This is a very emotional night for me because we are going to the 100th episode. So we are grateful to God to be here. I am your host, Adi Three, for Isaac on Third. Our panelist tonight, a man that has been with me from the start, that is Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Buddy Thornton, please say hello to the people. I really appreciate the invitation tonight, Isaiah, and hello, everybody, and uh, I can't wait to get cracking on this. Absolutely. You know, tonight I feel that there's going to be a power to act. There's going to be a power to act and a power to connect. Tonight's topic is one that is long overdue, that is combating sabotage communities of practice and co-opetition. How organizational leaders should navigate eternal sabotage within a company is a question that has been asked from ancient times until now. Organizations can increase in value when co-opetition is used as a competitive strategy. In other words, Regardless of how much collaboration occurs, co-opetition partners are still competing entities. It is recommended that organizations should strive to engage in an optimum level of co-opetition. As too little or too much of such strategies can be harmful and it can be harmful to various types of organizational or company performance. Business should or businesses should attempt to use all the benefits of collaborating with competitors to diminish some of the dark sides of co-opetition. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about, we're gonna get in depth we're going to give you some remedies for, for organizational leaders, for CEOs, for, for managers, for bosses. We're going to give you some key insight and we're going to give you some power to act on combating sabotage in the workplace. Combating sabotage through communities of practice and co-opetition. Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro, I had to bring you back on for this topic because it's so crucial. And, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about what this topic means to you and, and what you're doing uh, currently in the world today. Well, Isaiah, this topic is very, very near and dear to me because when you're dealing with diverse populations and especially in situations where we're coming out of a global pandemic and a lot of people have been sidelined and now they're coming back out into the public and they want to get involved uh, they don't want to return to the paradigm that basically created stagnation and created situations where they felt like they were marginalized especially those who were immediately sidelined as soon as covid hit last year so when i was working on communities of practice and co-opetition as a way to get a larger uh, number of people in the community especially those with diverse backgrounds 
Uh, it was to give them a leg up and allow them to be recognized for their uh, involvement and their ability to contribute to uh, a diverse cultural environment. And it fits in with my doctorate, my doctoral studies. But more than that, it empowers the community as well as the organizations that are within the community because without the community, the organizations are going to fail anyways. So that's where I am, and that's that's how it's very, very important to me, the impact that it's going to have with my neighbors, not just my clients. You know, buddy, you are the positive social change agent pro. Okay, That is your brand. I believe that's your brand because not only does it allow people to grow themselves, but it also gives people awareness. And this awareness is tied to being a greater you, a better you, right? And because you are sincere and you are transparent, then you give us feedback. I think those are the necessary characteristics. Those are the necessary values, necessary dispositions that we need to have those pro-social behaviors. Now, before we get too in-depth into that, I want to ask you a question. And this question asks you to describe in your world of how to apply this. But for you, what are some what are some of the practices that organizations can use to, I would say, begin combating sabotage? These necessary relationships that need to happen in any organization that can be uh, threatened with these barriers to communication, with these barriers of transparency that will cause, you know, the organization to go backwards. And it will affect stakeholders. It will affect those people that are, are tied to this organization because the day that we live in now, organizations are diverse. They come from diverse backgrounds. So based off of your experience, uh, what are some practices that organizations can begin to start implementing in the beginning stages of combating sabotage within their organization or their, their company? That's my question. First question for you. Well, the very first thing that they have to do is they have to establish a mindset of inclusiveness that starts with a universal positive regard. We cannot and will not ever be able to de develop any culture in any organization, whether it's a small company or a large organization, without understanding that every person, all the human capital that's in that company, whether it's two or three people in an office or 10,000 people, they all have value to the company. Now, there are some very large companies in the world right now. There's Amazon. that They're so big that they, uh, they use computers to hire their people. I mean, that, that's the very definition of anti-UPC. You, you can't have universal positive commitment to your people if you don't even know who they are. So you have to have universal positive regard, and you have to start from the position of every human in your workplace has value. And if that's the mindset going in, you're not going to have a problem getting people who are going to commit to that, especially when you're talking to them across the desk and they're looking at you and they're trying to determine whether they like you or want to be there because you're selling yourself as much as they're selling themselves to you. 
So that's the first thing is if it's a given that we're in a diverse culture, and we are, and if it's going to be even more diverse over time, which it will be, and it's another given that 80 to 85% of all the companies across the United States are small to medium enterprises, meaning by definition they have less than 100 employees, then the cultures are manageable. So what you have to do is you have to go in with the mindset that you're going to have multiple things. You're going to have a community of practice where every person has value. And so you have to say, we're going to include you in decision making. We're going to make sure that you understand your role in the, in the uh, community, the community of practice, because you contribute to the community of practice. What you think and what you don't think, we want to hear what you have to say. We're going to commit to bottom-up team interaction. So if a manager, middle manager, or even the owner of a very small company is not hearing contribution from someone, there's got to be a reason why. And if someone's not contributing, then are they holding back, which is a form of sabotage? Are they planning on leaving? And if they're leaving, are they going to take proprietary information with them? That's another form of sabotage. So what you have to do is you have to start from the very beginning that we're going to treat you as if you are, have extreme value to us. And the way you do that is you hire with a methodology that I adapted from a, an older methodology, which was called the ASA methodology, which is attraction, selection, and attrition, where you attract candidates, you select those candidates, and then when you lose people, you just recycle and you continue going down that ASA model. Well, in this environment, a lot of companies closed. Right now, we know that the hiring dynamic is that we have way more positions than we have people to fill them. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to fill every position in every company across our great country. But we need to do it the right way. So the adapted model that I use is attraction, cultural relevance, selection, retrain, retain, reinvent, reframe, reimagine, and if all else fails, we have to let them leave. That's attrition. So we, we know this is an expanded model from an older model, but we also know that it focuses on the front end, uh, on culture. If we're going to attract people, we want to attract people who can do the job, but we're not going to look for the people who are going to come in and not contribute because then we have questions. We don't know whether they're contributing or whether they're simply biding time until they can go somewhere else. If they're not contributing, then that's a form of sabotage because they're not producing for throughput. So I always get around that by establishing a mentor-mentee dyad within every group. There is a dynamic in group interaction called a dyadic primacy effect. You could have a group of 30 different people. It doesn't matter. You could have 30 different people in a, in a room. Everything's going to revolve down to dyads. There's going to be a one-on-one -on -one interaction between people at every level. And it doesn't matter. They've tested this for 40 years. As soon as you understand that everything is about relationships and the dyadic primacy effect, then you can pair people up. Pair someone who's been around a long time with someone who's new. 
and get the person who's been around a long time to encourage the person who's new to interact and to contribute and to see say hey that doesn't look right to me and get the reframing going get the contribution going what it builds is it builds a common thread it builds a common goal and then as everything goes up a rising tide lifts all ships you can have equal rewards for everyone so no one feels slighted everyone feels like they're part of a team sure there's going to be some people who focus on the me instead of the we and those are the people you let go those are the people you let leave we're not worried about the we the me's we always want the we's that's how you build culture and culture combat sabotage better than any other dynamic that we have that was so so good you know because many times when we talk about sabotage a lot of people don't know what sabotage is and so sabotage is basically destruction someone that's sabotaging you they're actually whether they know it or not they are trying to destroy something whether it be a family or organization you name it a relationship they and sometimes people can self-sabotage they can sabotage themselves not knowing that they are destroying oneself what you said tonight was so universal in its application in this approach it was universal and you tied in to the question i asked about some of the beginning um, methods that an organization can use that is experiencing self-sabotage. You, you talked about contributing mentorship and how mentors contribute to mentees and guide them along that way in that process of the company so they can teach them the, the mission, the, the vision of that organization and help them stay aligned to that vision. I, I thought that was very powerful in building uh, that healthy a workplace relationship, that social relationship within the workplace. The part for me that's going to be so vital for the listeners is how you talked about repairing relationships. How you talked about, because in many cases, people don't know if they're doing right or if they're doing wrong. And so having those people coming in this season those cadre coming in and showing them, hey, this is what you're doing good. This is what you're doing bad. This is what needs improvements. Those people that come in and give those SWOT analysis are so, so, so vital. And, and I like the way you, you brought that in. With that being said, and before I go further, let me say this. I have to give honor where honor is due. And sir, I honor you and I honor all the value you have brought to this podcast. And again, I want to thank you so much for uh, being on this journey with me with episode 99. Uh, with that being said, let me ask you another question. Buddy Thorne, the positive social changes in pro. Why should organizational leadership strategies focus on curriculums? Because we're talking about sabotage. We're talking about destructive practices within the organization. Why should we start focusing on curriculums for those organizational leaders to have, to be able to access, that we can begin to share with them, start sharing with them, right? That's aligned to these same interests and these same passions that we discussed tonight. My question for you is, 
what are your thoughts? How would you describe? How would you start? How would you start a conversation on focusing on curriculums to begin to implement for cooperation and for just? I would say a type of mediation. I would say a type of camaraderie within the organization. How would you term it? What would you call it? How would you start that conversation? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that when you're looking at building culture within an organization, and right now coming out of COVID, that's exactly what we have to do. Is we have to reinvent culture, and we have an opportunity to do it the right way. So my conversation with a someone who's an organizational leader would be, do you want to go back to what you were doing before, or would you like to start on a clean foot? And the clean foot is team is more important than individuals. And one of the dynamics that has been very apparent and has been focused on, especially for the last couple of years, has been this unicorn effect. A lot of companies go after the unicorns, the high achievers, the, the superstars. And what happens is they just don't understand. Unicorns do not stay. Unicorns do not commit to the team. If you're going to have a curriculum, you need to have a curriculum that builds the team. You need to emphasize, we're going to emphasize using ombudsman. We're going to allow bottom-up communication. We're going to discuss conflict at the floor level. And we're going to let the people resolve the conflict through the tools and the management tools that can come from bottom-up. And we're going to understand that we need to provide all the resources. Maybe we have some external third-party vendors come in and do a little bit of training, some culture training, some communication training, some active listening training. But we do it at a level that is on the bottom rung and upward. We don't do it from the top down because you want to build a team that wants to stay. Right now, the biggest thing is let's build longevity into organizations, not singular unicorns who are going to look for a way to have upward mobility in one, two, three years and just leave. And by the way, take your proprietary information with them. So as you do these curriculums, whatever happens with it, whatever type of business you have, and there's no way, I mean, there's thousands of curriculums that we could talk about, but nothing says value more than investing in human capital and their advancement. And nothing advances people more than building their human competency, their ability to communicate, their ability to break down their fear of communication, and their ability to stay focused, knowing that they're going to be valued, that whatever they say is going to be taken to heart and not ignored, because that has been a huge dynamic that has been a problem in the American business culture for decades. We have to understand, middle managers and above and HR has two very big problems. Number one, they have affinity bias. When a hiring a person is looking at someone across the desk, Affinity bias is they're looking for someone who looks like them, acts like them, talks like them, and they rarely look for anything unless it's mandated that's going to be external to their own culture. Now, there are exceptions to that rule, and as time goes on, that, that rule is going to get lessened and lessened. But affinity bias is the number one problem in HR departments. 
They hire for likeness. They hire for familiarity. They don't hire anything outside of familiarity, their comfort zone. And when they're looking across the desk, they anchor on confirmation bias. If they hear what they expect to hear, they get satisfied, they get complacent, and they go, yeah, this guy's going to fit. I'm going to hire him. They don't look to expand the culture in the organization. By the year 2050, this is going to be a minority-majority nation. There's going to be more minorities than whites and Every company is going to need to embrace the fact that they need to build a broad-based, diverse culture at every level, especially from the ground up. And so they need to combat affinity bias. They need to combat confirmation bias. The only way to do that is to have trainers come in, and when they see it, identify it, name it, stop it, and redirect it so that it gets stopped right where it's sitting. That's so important. They need to focus on what I said. Unicorns do not stay. People who perceive they are valued, they will stay and they will contribute. They will not even consider sabotage. They're going to want to be where they're valued. They're going to want to be where people are spending money on them and taking care of them and making them feel like they belong. doesn't have to be family, but it definitely, they have to feel like they belong. Listen, that was so in the pocket. What I heard most from what you said, I can describe in one word. If I were to mix everything you just said up, I would say sustainability. And why do I say sustainability? Well, because we were talking about attrition. We're talking about people coming to a place feeling like they can make a difference. When they feel like they can make a difference, then you've given them objectives to accomplish those missions, and you have given them resources to make them successful. Let's face it. When people do a job, they want to be successful. They want to be highly successful. Keeping us tonight are some tools to make us highly successful. To me, it it was an enlightenment. As I look through it in foresight, it was an enlightenment. It was an enlightenment to topics, conversations that are necessary, that have to happen, that are crucial, that are needed to happen in order for us to go into the new industrial revolution. Because there's a new industrial revolution upon us. You see what's going on with NASA and the space travelers. They are exploring they're they're charting new charts they're going different places they're 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 going beyond the limits whenever mankind goes beyond those limits that's a revolution that's an evolution that's man revolving so we're going to need to be retrained we're going to need to reimagine and we're going to need people to come in like yourself to come in and help us and show us how to retain all that information. But tonight we're talking about, you know, some ways to combat, to stop, to manage, sabotage within our organizations. Uh, Buddy Thornton, the positive social change agent pro. And next question for you is... When does co-opetition become 
harmful or negative for a company's performance, for a company's capabilities, and for a company's opportunities for success? That's my question for you. Well, before I dive into that, I want to reiterate one thing. You did say something that was very important. You said that, you know, people want to feel like they are making a difference. But in this current environment, the fact that there are so many people out of work and there are a lot of jobs and we have plenty of jobs for those people, it's also incumbent on a company to project that they are going to make a huge positive difference in the life of those employees. That is so critical to embedding the employee not feeling like they are having to come to work. They want to come to work. But flip that over. When competition becomes harmful, it's because somebody in some level or some way, shape, or form starts to get a little overzealous. Maybe people in the human capital side of things start focusing on rewards instead of outcomes and uh, clients. Uh, throughput starts to suffer. Uh, you know, we do have cooperation both intra-organizational and inter-organizational. So we do have cooperation with other vendors who say are collaborating with us in the alliance to serve a large client, or perhaps our vendors are giving us uh, supplies that we need and we're using multiple vendors because one can't handle the entire supply. So we have a friendly cooperation between them to, to see who's going to be able to deliver the right way, but we don't play them off against each other. We make sure they're both involved. When one can't deliver, the other one steps up to the plate. But when you start making it more about competition than co-opetition and it returns to that competitive environment, now sometimes you can rub people the wrong way or people can get off on a tangent and they can feel like they're being mistreated, morale declines, and once you're back in a full competition environment, it's real difficult to get them to commit to co-opetition again because co-opetition is a very fine line. You got to have people feeling like, yes, I'm collaborating to make things work, but I'm going to be rewarded for what I do. I'm not going to be uh, put down or I'm not going to be insulted. Uh, I, I feel like I'm contributing when I'm someone else is asked to contribute and I'm not. I'm not going to be insulted by that. I'm not going to withhold. I'm not going to start sabotaging. But if you don't maintain that fine line of keeping everybody in the loop, that's when it starts to fall apart. It becomes harmful. It's, a, it's almost like an orchestra has to have every section playing at its absolute best because the minute one part starts to fall out of sync, the orchestra sounds horrible. And you know that. You know, you've got an ensemble of four, five, six people. If one person is out of sync with the other five, it sounds horrible. So at every level, whether it's a duo or it's a huge orchestra, that's what an organization is. And we have to build on that. We have to make sure that the middle management people, especially the people who are interacting with the people on a daily basis, the vendors and the employees, they understand that everything is fine-tuned and everything has to be kept on the up and up and very transparent. Nothing can be behind closed doors because 
as soon as someone feels like they're being left out of the loop, that's when the morale will take a hit and throughput will start suffering and you'll flip back into a full competition environment and then you're, it's going to be weeks or months before you can get back where you were. That, that's, it's so critical. And it all starts with that universal positive regard. If you treat people with universal positive regard, no one's going to feel insulted. Everyone's going to feel like they're contributing and everyone's going to feel like they have value. Okay, maybe someone's on the sideline for a few days. Maybe they, don't, they didn't get to contribute. Maybe their department was a little slow or something was happening. Maybe a piece of equipment was down. But if they're asked to engage, hey, maybe you can help unload a truck or you can do this or you can do that. There's a lot of things that people can do to be engaged into the process and make them feel like they're still of value. People have to buy into that, and you have to do that. It's, again, a very fine line. You have this very narrow band where cooperation works. Above it or below it, it falls apart. Universal positive regard. Ooh, that was so good. That was so good. Listeners, you got to share this. You got to share this. You got to share this. I believe... Buddy, you have a course that you have created that goes in depth that you, you take to different organizations and you mediate. I think one of the most important takeaways I had for tonight was relationships. Having those healthy relationships and knowing when you have someone on the team that is for the team or for themselves and then, you know, how do you start working on ways of removing them and that's a part of the community but you know that's enough for me what are, what are your takeaways for tonight well you know i want to give you a little uh peek into the world that i work in and the people that i work with the team that i've developed and it's very important that people understand yes I'm in Phoenix, and you know we're obviously very close to the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, so we have a lot of Hispanics in this area. But we also are close to California, so we have a lot of Pacific Rim people in this area. And I've developed a team. I've got a couple of people from Mongolia, a married couple. I've got a gentleman from Thailand. I've got a gentleman from Vietnam. I've got a gentleman that I call, he's from, uh, he's got a green card, he's from Chicago. Uh, and I've got uh, several Hispanics. I've got two blacks. I've got people who, under all recognition, you would never expect to see them all working as a conducive team and plying their trade, especially in an environment where everything is got to be done yesterday everything has to be ultra specific and everything has to be attuned to each individual client that comes through the door because we work in a conflict environment where we never know what's going to come through the door so everything has to be let's do the intake let's find out what the need is let's find out what the specifics are and then let's come up with a solution let's work on you know the psychological needs of the client let's take care of things and the common core issue on all of them is they all say the same thing that before anyone does anything we collaborate as a team and we compare notes and we do peer review and i ask the least of them what their opinion is before 
me with the highest level of education and experience does anything to make any kind of a decision and if i believe that their solution is the best one i don't even come up with a solution i embed them into the solution and i reward them for the solution at least two three four days a month i bring in donuts during the holiday season i bring in uh, christmas kringles i i do things on the spur of the moment it's never announced it's always what can I do to surprise my people today or this week? Or what can I do special because so-and-so went out of their way to go and help someone who was broke down on the freeway? I recognize the extra effort. I recognize the ordinary effort. And I recognize the diversity of the team. Every month, I ask a different member of the team to tell us a little story about where they're from, what their past history was, what their experience was before we do our peer review. And everybody gets to know everybody at least a little bit. And it makes you not feel like family, but it makes you feel familiar enough to where there's a level of empathy involved that you believe that the culture is more important than the individual. And with the exception of the one person I lost in January who died from COVID, I have not lost a person on my team for more than a decade. So... You know, it is all about how you treat people and how you approach people that's more important than the outcome because if you do right by the people and they have the competency because you've trained them and worked with them, the outcomes are always going to be there anyways. Listen, you heard it tonight. Buddy Thornton, I call him the positive social change agent. So, good night. <laughs>